So find your way to Psalm 107. Psalms ought to be right in the middle of your Bible, and of course you're used to turning there now anyway. You ought to turn there every day. Let's pray. Father, it is through the foolishness of preaching that You have ordained to speak. And how foolish it would be for a man of any sort to get up and to think that he could speak the words of God, to think that he could have any kind of power to change another's soul, to move another's heart, to awaken to life a dead and clouded mind, to impart truth. None of these things could happen. None of these things will happen. Unless, Holy Spirit, You take the Word which You have authored through these writers and You enliven it to our souls. You awaken our minds. You grip us. You cause us to hear the voice of God speaking through the page and through the weakness of a human proclaimer. Lord, awaken us today to Your truth for the good of our souls and our lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Psalm 107 is a longer psalm. I'm just going to begin by reading verse 1 to 9, and then I'm going to read verse 43. So following with me. Psalmist writes, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Last verse of the psalm, Psalm 43, verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So that's the theme of this psalm. The steadfast love of the Lord. His kesed. In Hebrew, hesed is a word that is challenging to bring over into English because we don't have a word that fits it exactly. And so some of your translations as you're reading along say love. Others say loving kindness or mercy or faithful love or as we see here, steadfast love. The point is that this is a love that is deeper than mere emotion. That it is, it is an ironclad commitment that results in action. It is uh, eternal, everlasting, indestructible, covenant commitment to do good to the one who is loved. And the point of this psalm is to get you to celebrate this love, to to contemplate it, as verse 43 says, to, to know it, and understand it and rely on it as the love that God has for you in Christ if you are His by faith. And so this morning, we want to learn to sing this song of God's chesed in a way that will strengthen our lives. And so to begin that, 
Look, first of all, just at the call we see here, the call to give thanks to God for His hesed, for His steadfast love. Verse 1, 2, and 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for His good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed out of trouble and gathered from north, south, east, and west. And so this psalm begins really as a thanksgiving Psalm calling us to be thankful to God. But notice that we are called to be thankful for something very specific. We are called to give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Don't ever forget that, by the way. Your God is good. In fact, He is the very definition of what good is. But specifically, how is His goodness manifested to us here We're told that it comes to us in the form of His steadfast love, His hesed. And again, that is the theme of this psalm. That's that's what the author wants to leave ringing in your ears this morning. And so it begins with it in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for His good. His steadfast love endures forever. He ends with it in verse 43. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's kind of like brackets around the whole psalm uh, telling you this is what we're talking about. Uh, This is the theme. And then in between those brackets, we're going to see repeated four different times living pictures of what this steadfast love looks like in action. So that's the structure of the psalm. It's purposeful. Begin with steadfast love, end with steadfast love, filling the middle with examples of steadfast love. And so when you read this psalm, you need to to keep that in mind. This psalm is meant to teach you to celebrate and rely on God's chesed. And again, what is chesed? You know, throwing foreign terms out there, but it's an important one. It is God's faithfulness to us who are His. It is God's covenant-keeping love to us. It is God's ironclad commitment to do me good in Christ because in His mercy He has chosen to save me and He is determined to see that through. On a personal level, we can say that this is His ongoing choice to love you in Christ and to keep loving you in Christ and doing you good through all circumstances and situations for Jesus' sake until He gets you home. That's the message here. That's what He wants you not only to know, but also to be able to proclaim. I mean, look at verse 2. He says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. (laughs) Those He has redeemed out of trouble. So if you're in Christ, this is you He's talking about. You are the redeemed. You are those that God has saved out of the world and is now gathering to Himself, verse 3 says, from north, south, east, and west, every nation, tribe, and tongue, like Warren said, in order to assemble us together eternally as a redeemed and worshiping people. And, And so redeemed, it just means those who are saved, those who are rescued, more specifically, those who have been purchased out of slavery to become sons and daughters of God through faith. Seated at His table. (laughs) And so if you're in Christ this morning, this is you. And so we, the redeemed, need to know this song of God's chesed so that we can say it and sing it 
and celebrate it and rely on it day by day as we keep looking to Him by faith. And so, to help us understand and comprehend the beauty of this hesed, the psalmist goes on to give us four living pictures of God's steadfast love in action to us. That's the bulk of the psalm. So we'll look at each of these pictures. First of all, the first picture tells us that God is faithful to save lost wanderers who call upon Him. Verses 4 to 9. Some have wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Now in each of these four pictures in this psalm, He's going to tell us four things. First, He's going to tell us about their desperate situation. They're all in a mess. Second, He's going to tell us how they turned to the Lord in faith. Third, how He saved them when they turned to Him, saved them from their trouble. And then fourth, how they should celebrate God's steadfast love for saving them. So that's, that's, the, that's the outline we're going to see. And you can summarize it simply as their calamity, their cry, their salvation, and their celebration. Calamity, cry, salvation, celebration. Four times over. And so first, notice their calamity. They're wandering, lost in the desert. They can't find a city to dwell in. They're hungry and they're thirsty. They're fainting. These people are in a desperate situation. Lost in a vast desert wasteland. No place to call home. Don't know if they've been lost in the desert. Uh, I'm sure it's a terrifying experience. They can't find food or water. Historically, this would picture God's people of Israel during their exile to Babylon. You know, and that's probably when this psalm was written, when Israel was exiled because of its sin. But, but spiritually, this pictures all people everywhere, every human being who was without Christ. Isaiah 53 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Ephesians 2 says that we were alienated from God, strangers to His promises, having no hope and without God in the world. We were lost. And if you are without Christ, now you are lost. Lost people have no hope. They have no future. They have no eternal home to go to. You may have a temporary home for now, but... Even that's not going to last forever. You, you could lose that home here in time or one day for sure you will leave that home in death. Then what? Hebrews 13.14 says, Here, in this present realm, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is a picture of people who are spiritually homeless. People who are wearied from wandering in that homeless condition in this world. People dissatisfied with the, with the very emptiness of this life. What is their hope? Look at verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. Now pay attention to those words in verse 6. We're going to see these exact same words repeated 
four times in this gospel. In fact, if I could have the slide behind me, we're going to see that each time these people in a desperate situation come to themselves by His grace and begin to see the desperateness of their situation, this will be their cry. So just say that first one with me. Uh, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. They cried to the Lord, and He did what? He delivered them. He he saved them. Uh, Specifically, here in verse 7, it says, He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. That straight way. That straight way is Jesus Himself in the Gospel of Christ. Jesus tells us that He Himself is the way that brings us home. John 14, verse 6. Verse 9 adds, For He, this God who saves, satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. So many New Testament themes here. Jesus is the way that leads us home. He is the bread of life that satisfies our hungry souls. He is the water of life that quenches our thirst eternally. So the weary turn to Him and they find rest. And so we we cried to Him and He saved us. Is that anybody's testimony here this morning? And so what should be our response to this rich salvation, this God who found us wandering in the wilderness and brought us home? Look at verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Wondrous works mean His works of salvation. Him flexing His arm and coming to our rescue. And again, we're going to see these exact same words repeated throughout this psalm. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. So He rescues the homeless wanderers who cry out to Him. Second, notice He frees imprisoned rebels from their bondage when they call upon Him. That's verses 10 to 16. Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works for the children of men, for He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. (laughs) What is their plight? Well, they are prisoners in death row. Do you see that? Sitting chained in darkness, awaiting a sentence of death. For what? Verse 11 says it is for their rebellion, for for their sin, for turning away from God's Word and going their own way. Remember, the wages of sin is death, always death. Every choice to turn away from God's Word into sin puts you in chains. It blinds you in the darkness. It binds you over for the day of judgment. Jesus made that very clear. John 8.34, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now sometimes that slavery is obvious. Just think of drug addiction or alcoholism. 
You had a choice at first when you began to put whatever that was into your body. You decided to do that, but then you find very quickly that you were enslaved to it. You were compelled to go back to it. You were held captive in its deadly grip. And by the way, young people, please hear that. Part of the foolishness of youth is to think, I can handle this. Others do. I can handle this. How many thousands upon thousands upon thousands have made shipwreck of their entire lives because I can handle this. And quickly you find that it handles you. Talk to Rob about this. He'd be glad to tell you how that works. Been there, done that, got saved out of it. Praise the Lord. Well, that's what this is about. Some sins are obvious. Other sins are more subtle. Pornography as it addicts, bitterness, unforgiveness, self-obsession, having to check your phone constantly to get that little hit of affirmation, always needing to be entertained, never being satisfied. Some of the, the most revealing words you can speak is when you say, I'm so bored. Which basically means, I'm not being entertained. I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the one being glorified and lauded by those around me. Sin is addictive. All sin is addictive. All sin enslaves the sinner and sickens the heart. Verse 12, So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They experienced the, the, the justice of God in, 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 in what Romans 1 talks about in, in turning them over to their sin. They fell down with none to help them. None to help them. And so humanly speaking, it's hopeless. If sin is the problem, and please hear me, it is, then there is no human solution for it. You can't just work your way out of it. You don't just get better one day. So it's not a matter of learning some new psychological technique that you can use to just manage your sin and keep it under control. No, you need to be rescued. If sin is the problem, there is no human solution for it. Only Christ can save you. So what is the hope? What is the hope? Verse 12. Uh, not verse 12. Um, verse 13. Yeah, there it is behind me. You see it. Say it again with me. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He delivered them. He brought them out of darkness into His marvelous light, as the New Testament says. Or actually here in verse 14, it says the same thing. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. He burst their bonds. Now think of that. You meant to see this picture. He didn't just come and lock the door and let them skulk out of the cell. He shattered the bonds. Verse 16 goes even further in case we missed it. For He shattered the doors of bronze and He cut the bars of iron in two. <laughs> so no more bars on the window, they're gone. No more door of bronze guarding the jail cell. It is shattered. Anybody here have that testimony? Of God's shattering grace stepping into your darkness and bringing you back into the light? Reminds me of the song we just sang by Charles Wesley, that third verse which I love so much. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. A rose went forth and followed thee. 
out of darkness into light, out of slavery into freedom, salvation by faith in Christ alone. What should people do who have experienced such a great salvation? Oh, verse 15 tells us, say it with me. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. You see a pattern here. We're going to do that again. Be ready. But, but are you seeing the pattern? Are you seeing the picture? Calamity, cry, salvation, celebration. Look at the next one. Third picture, He heals the sin-sick and foolish who call on Him. Verse 17 Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer salvation of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds with songs of joy. Some were fools, it says, because of their sinful ways. A fool in Scripture is not someone who falls short intellectually, that's how we tend to use the word, but someone who falls short morally. Do you understand? You can be a Rhodes Scholar, you can be a genius, and still be a fool morally. Going your own way, doing your own thing, it's not a matter of intelligence, it's a matter of the biblical wisdom in the way your life is lived in keeping with God. In fact, biblically, understand, you play the fool every time you spurn God's Word and try to live in this God-made, God-ruled universe as if God did not exist. It's foolish. That's why Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. I'm not going to have to face him. Therefore they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none, in fact, who do good. It's foolish to live in that way. It's suicidal. To, to live in a moral universe, and by the way, it's the only universe that exists. To live in a moral universe where you will surely face God and give an answer for your sins and then choose to ignore Him and thumb your nose at His Word and insist on going your own way, that is the very definition of moral insanity. Yet, that is how most people live. And apart from Christ, that is exactly how you would live and it may be how you are living. And the result of that he describes here as a kind of soul sickness. Verse 17 and 18. Uh, they re- oh, Verse 17. There we go. They were fools in their sinful ways because of their iniquities. They suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. He's describing illness here. The word affliction a picture someone who is doubled over in pain with an illness like food poisoning. Have you ever had food poisoning? Or a serious stomach ailment that caused you to double over and it just seemed to consume your whole life? I mean, uh, my wife went through some of that this weekend. And Verse 18 says that was their condition. And the result is that they, they loathed any kind of good food. 
the more you give into sin, the more it begins to consume and sicken your whole life, the more it takes away your taste for that which is good and holy and righteous, the more you don't want anything to do. You have no interest in God or the things of God because you, 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 your, your desire for that which is good has been destroyed and you're being dragged closer and closer and closer to the gates of death. I mean, again, just think in terms of addiction. The more that thing consumes your life, the sicker you become. The more your whole personality and life are twisted around that thing. But understand, that's, that's true of every sin. Well, please understand this. The foolishness of sin always leads to sickness of soul. The foolishness of sin always leads to sickness of soul. You can't beat it. The road to rebellion is always leading you somewhere and soon it will plunge down into slavery and to hell itself. Proverbs 14, 12, the way, there's a way that seems right to a man. I follow my heart. Seems right. I want you to follow my heart, the world says. But its end is always the way of death. So we're talking here about a self-inflicted wound. We choose sin never realizing that in doing so we are choosing sickness and spiritual death. Some of, you know, some of you know exactly what I mean. You've been down this road. Some of you may still be there perhaps and how I pray for your release. But, but you've tasted the nauseating vomit of your sin. You've felt your stomach wretch at the things that you've done. And yet you did them anyway. They sicken you, but you, you did them anyway. That is your slavery. This is what you are trapped in. That is your foolishness. And the more you give in to them, the sicker and the sicker you become. It's a deadly death spiral. What hope is there? What help can you find for this self-inflicted, sickening wound of sin? Verse 19 gives the answer. Say it with me like you really mean it this time. Verse 19 Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. They cried, and He saved them. How? We're going a little deeper here. Notice this, verse 20. How did He save them? He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. He sent His Word. What Word? His saving Word. His Gospel Word. His Word about Christ. For we're told in the New Testament that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came among us and took on Himself our sickness, covered Himself with our nauseating sin and carried it to the cross where there He purchased our freedom. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastising that brought us peace and with His wounds we are healed. Salvation here is pictured as the healing of a sin-sick soul. And how does that healing take place? Again, notice, through His Word. He sends His Word into our souls. He takes the initiative. He sends it to us. Just like Jesus sent that Word to the official Son. He didn't have to go there and touch Him. He just sent the Word and healed Him. And Christ sends the Word of the Gospel and He heals us. We, we hear the Gospel and we believe and are cleansed and made spiritually whole. Again, is this a testimony of anyone in here? 
What should people do who receive this grace of spiritual healing? Verse 21 tells us, say it again with me, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. That's not all. Look, verse 22 now continues and says, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. We are saved to become living sacrifices of praise. Living advertisements of His mercy. And Paul says this very thing in Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, same concept here, by the loving kindness of God, by His amazing love that He poured out upon you, I appeal to you to present your bodies, all that you are, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we give all back to Him as living sacrifices to the praise and the glory of His grace. And that becomes the Christian life. And so in Hesed, He saves the lost wanderer and brings them home. He frees imprisoned rebels, shattering the cell that held them. He heals sin-sick fools and gives them spiritual health. Fourth picture. And He rescues storm-tossed travelers who call on Him. Now notice the situation is a little different here as I read it. Beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised up the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. Then they called, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Now do you see the difference? These folks, unlike the other three examples, are not suffering from some specific sin they have committed. They're just going about their business, making a living, uh, uh, shipping things here and there, just living their lives until the storm comes. Notice, not all suffering is tied to your specific sin. Some is, to be sure. We do bring a lot of it upon ourselves, but sometimes trouble and pain come simply because we live in a broken world. Sometimes our suffering is just part of being in this sin-sick universe. But notice even there, even there, God is sovereign. Verse 25 says that He sent the winds. He raised up the storms. Never forget that. When the storm blows through later this afternoon, if it does as they're, as they're trying to predict, stop and think, God sent this. God speaks through this storm. God is in this. No matter what is happening, God is in the storm. And by the way, that is our great help. 
But in the midst of a storm, let's be honest, it doesn't feel that way. It, frankly, often just feels terrifying. Notice, they're in quite a fix here. Uh, they are indeed terrified. It says their courage melted away, verse 26. They were at their wits' end, verse 27, which means all their wisdom was swallowed up. That's the literal translation. Nothing they tried worked. They couldn't save themselves. Have you ever heard people say, God will never give you more than you can handle? i got a Greek word for you, malarkey. That's not Greek, but it's the nicest word I could think of. Let me, let me disabuse you of that false notion. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. Count on it. He will give you more than you can handle. He will overwhelm you with things too big to you to remind you just how small you really are. He will put you in a place where you have no choice and no hope but to turn and trust in Him. You've been there? What do you do in that situation? Where do you find help when that happens? Verse 28, these familiar words, same with me one more time. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. They cried to Him, and He heard them. He came to them, and He rescued them. Verse 29 describes it. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Boy, does that remind you about anything in the New Testament? (laughs) It's like a preview of Jesus and the disciples in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Do you remember that event? Mark 4 is one of the places you'll find it. Jesus says to the disciples, hey, let's get in the boat and go over to the other side. So notice this. Who put them in this situation? Jesus put them in this situation. They went where Jesus commanded them. They are obeying Him. And when they get where He sent them, the wind whips up out of nowhere. The waves begin to pummel their little boat, threatening to sink it. And they are terrified. Bad stuff doesn't mean you did it wrong. Sometimes it just means Christ is going to put you through something to teach you who He is. Mark 7.37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? They're not singing Kumbaya. They're terrified. And he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And now they were really terrified, this time of Him, and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey Him? Who is this? Well, shouldn't they have known? Hadn't they ever read this psalm? It was in their hymn books. They had access to this psalm in the synagogues. Surely they've heard it. Who is this? It's the Lord who rules the storm. That's who it is. It's the Lord who reigns over all. Another psalm, Psalm 93, said, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted their voice. The floods have lifted their roaring. But mightier than the thunder of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, is the Lord on high. He is mighty. That's who this is. 
They should have known it. Do you know it? Do you see how you can call on Him in the midst of the storm and find grace to help in time of need? Oh, listen, call on Him this morning. And when it happens, when His help comes, what must you do? Verse 31, you know where we're headed? Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love and His wondrous works for the children of men. Verse 32 continues, And let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Notice it's congregational. They're singing this together. This ought to be happening every time we come together as His people. Uh, We, the redeemed, sing this song of His steadfast love and praise Him together for His great salvation. We remind each other who He is and what He's done. We, We sing it and we say it. We celebrate it and we pray it until it gets down deep into our souls to give us strength. Now, that's one of the many reasons that we need to come together like this regularly. Because I need you to remind me and you need me to remind you and we each need the other singing this song into our ears to remind us and strengthen us with His grace. And that's the third thing. I realize it's noon, but this is short. But you need it, so don't go anywhere. We are strengthened then as we consider and celebrate together God's steadfast love. This last section beginning in verse 33 is very different from what came before. So different, in fact, there are scholars out there who think it's a completely different song that just accidentally somehow got added in here at this point. And I don't believe that for a minute. Clearly there is a shift here from a thanksgiving psalm format to a wisdom psalm format, but I think that it is on purpose. I think the psalmist does this to provoke us to apply all that he has just been showing us uh, so that we understand what God is doing in our lives now. He wants us to take this truth of God's hesed we've been celebrating and begin to apply it into our lives as that upon which we stand. In other words, He wants us to get it. He wants us to say, Oh yeah, this truth will make a difference in my life if I embrace it and sing it and celebrate it. And so he does two things and then gives us a conclusion. First, he just reminds us that God is sovereign in all things. That's verse 35 to 38. I'm sorry, 33 to 38. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salt waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. In other words, he brings judgment. He also turns deserts into pools of water and parts land into springs of water. And there He lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield by His blessing. They multiply greatly, and He does not let their livestock diminish. In short, this is a song of God's sovereignty. The point is, no matter what is happening in the world around us, whether judgment is falling or blessing is being given, the same God is in charge. When He brings judgment on the wicked, verse 33 and 34, or when He brings blessing upon the righteous, verse 35 to 38, it is the same sovereign hand. It is God's hand that moves all things through His providence. It's not just fate. It's not random 
probability. It's not happenstance or luck. It's God. And so the wisest thing you can do is set your hope in this God and set your mind upon His truth and entrust the whole of your life to Him through Christ. Second, He reminds us that this sovereign God is also a God who is just. He sings a song of justice. Verse 39, when they, His people, are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, He pours contempt upon princes, the ones who are oppressing them, and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. And look at that last line. What a picture. Jason Welm and I were talking about this briefly um, this Friday uh, at the men's psalm thing. And just that day of pure justice that is coming when righteousness will be forever exalted and vindicated and wickedness will forever be silenced. I mean, what a day that will be. And it's in light of that that He gives the final exhortation in verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, think about this. Get this wisdom into your mind and heart. Consider simply means to contemplate, to keep in mind, to think about something. Don't just wander off this afternoon and put this truth behind you never to be picked up again. Go back to it this week. Think about what God's said means to your life. Think about how His covenant love secures you and gives you salvation and grace and hope as you depend on Him. Think about it today and tomorrow and next week, sing it and celebrate it and share it with others and live in light of this great truth. Because this is wisdom. This is wisdom. This will guard your heart and life if you give your attention to Him and believe the promise of His Hesep. This will give you hope no matter how dark or stormy or dank or damp or dangerous the world appears to be. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a God You are. What a Lord. Your steadfast love surrounds us, upholds us, strengthens us, enfolds us as we put our trust in You. Nothing can separate us from the steadfast love of God in Christ. Nothing, nothing at all as we trust in You. Oh God, give that conviction deep into our bones. The one who is still lost and in prison, still in the sickening grip of sin, would You even now let them do what this psalm says again and again. Let them cry out to the Lord in their trouble that they find His deliverance. And then let them praise You for Your steadfast love. For that is where life comes in. We pray this for each person here in Jesus. Amen.